I'm not interested in the conflict between the rational. I'm, I, my movies are acts of faith. I believe in monsters. I believe in ghosts. Mm -hmm. And my movies never question, are they real? They're real. From the darkest corners of Chicago, this is the unenthusiastic critics' Halloween movie marathon. Hello everyone and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. Joining me today in a tragedy doomed to repeat itself time and again is my lovely wife Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello. On today's episode, Nakia and I are continuing our 2020 Halloween movie marathon as we sit down for her first viewing of Guillermo del Toro's wartime ghost story, The Devil's Backbone, from 2001. But first, Nakia... Since this is the time of year that I attempt to convince you about the value of the horror genre, uh, I wanted to talk briefly about a new study released this month by your own alma mater, <laughs> the University of Chicago. Uh -huh. The study is entitled, Pandemic Practice. Horror fans and morbidly curious individuals are more psychologically resilient during the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. So, this is interesting. Last week, we talked about how horror is the only genre in which we intentionally go looking for something that can make us experience negative emotions. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's exactly where this study picks up. In the introduction, they write, Intentionally exposing oneself to fearful situations is, on its face, a peculiar phenomenon. An empirically supported explanation for why people engage in frightening fictional experiences is that these experiences can act as simulations of actual experiences from which individuals can gather information and model possible worlds. In a simulated experience, such as an oral story, a novel, or a film, one can explore possible futures or phenomena, gathering information about what the real version of such an experience would look like, and learn how to prepare for analogous situations in the real world. And it goes on to talk about how, you know, for example, zombies may not exist, mm -hmm. but the situations that, it, that occur in a zombie film are similar to other forms of widespread chaos and societal breakdown. Mm -hmm. So then we can learn how do people behave? Are they more likely to act cooperatively or <laughs> selfishly in such a situation? How might one navigate these, you know, altered social landscape once everything breaks down? The study also talks about how all of these horror movies give us a chance to practice emotion regulation. Mm -hmm. So we can, you know, learn to handle our own fear and anxiety and not freak out about it. So I'll link to the study in the show notes. It's, it's actually very interesting reading. But what they basically did is ask participants about their levels of interest in certain genres and then asked them a series of questions to gauge how they were dealing with the pandemic we've all been living with for, what is it, three years now? I don't sure. even know how long yeah. this has gone on. And it also interestingly asked them questions about how prepared they felt for it, like even practical things like, did you feel like you knew what items you would need mm. to buy mm -hmm. to prepare for the pandemic? Mm -hmm. To try to gauge whether that's something they had learned from zombie slash disaster slash horror movies. And here are their conclusions. We found that fans of horror films exhibited greater resilience during the pandemic and that fans of prepper genres, <laughs> alien invasion, apocalyptic, and zombie films, 
exhibited both greater resilience and preparedness. We also found that morbid curiosity was associated with positive resilience and interest in pandemic films during the pandemic. Taken together, these results are consistent with the hypothesis that exposure to frightening fictions allow audiences to practice effective coping strategies that can be beneficial in real-world situations. So basically, here's the argument for the entire horror genre, in a nutshell. I don't know how you can argue with it, because what it does is it helps us prepare for things like we're dealing with now. It makes us better, stronger people. Okay. Problem number one. So I looked at the study. Uh Uh-huh. The total number of participants was something like 310 people. So Right. Significant. Not. Significant sample size. Not that significant. You are now questioning the methodology of your alma mater. If we want to talk about the influential scholarship that has come out of the University of Chicago, <laughs> we can absolutely do that. <laughs> it has not been peer reviewed. That's an important point. Isn't that what we're doing now? <laughs> we are not peers. <laughs> you and I are not peers with each other or we are not peers with them? We are not peers with them. Okay. We are not, this is not a peer review. I do think it's an interesting study. It's not, once you mentioned it to me and I went to sort of read the the abstract and things like that. It isn't surprising necessarily, but it is, I don't know how much that's worth. Because given how we as a country have responded to the pandemic, Mm -hmm. it seems like nobody has ever watched a horror movie (laughs) ever. Because, and no one, and if they have watched horror films, this idea that they have somehow gained um, resiliency or an ability to regulate emotion, Mm -hmm. no, not happening. So... What what, uh, what, what are you basing that on? What's your evidence for that? The news. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) So this idea of collaboration and that you would somehow have some sort of foresight into like what you needed to do to prepare and mm-hmm. how you needed to operate in a world where sort of some normalcies have have broken down. I don't think that has been demonstrated, at least not wide scale. Well, I mean, to me, what it means is that all of those millions of people who just like went to the beach without masks and they never watched went a horror out to movie bars and went to parties and went to Trump rallies. They apparently are not true horror aficionados. Too many people watch horror films <laughs> to be like, oh, well, this is a small group of people. Or they who were maybe just not paying attention. They weren't paying I attention. Uh-huh. I don't know. Yeah. Or they're the people that die at the beginning or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So then what I actually found interesting about the study was the second piece, the morbid curiosity piece, because uh-huh. they listed some of the questions that they asked people, which I thought were kind of interesting. Okay. So they developed this morbid curiosity scale, and it determined people's interest in morbid topics by asking them how much they agree with certain statements. So the statements were, <laughs> okay. if I lived in medieval Europe, I would be interested in attending a public execution. Mm, I would be curious to see how an autopsy is performed. <laughs> I've actually seen that. It was really interesting. You saw an autopsy performed? I did in college, yes. What? You studied literature. Okay, this is the diversion. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I would be interested in attending or watching a video of an exorcism. Absolutely. No. no why? <laughs> <laughs> Strong agree on all of those okay. categories. Fine. So... You are a fan of horror. Yes. Do you think you have strong emotion regulation skills? Absolutely. Michael. Nikia. <laughs> You do not have strong emotion regulation skills. Again, I don't know what you're basing that on. 
every time we go outside, you basically threaten to murder people who aren't abiding by either social distancing <laughs> rules or they're not wearing a mask or something of that nature. No, no. So you're, you're misunderstanding the study, I think. Okay. That is me regulating my emotions. <laughs> And taking the lessons I've learned from horror movies Mm -hmm. in that anybody who isn't getting with the program, you you just got to kill them all. This is something you agree with because you say it every time we watch a horror movie. And that emotion regulation thing they talk about, they're talking about, for example, learning not to ignore the dangers, right? Mm -hmm. How avoidance Mm -hmm. is not a healthy strategy. Mm -hmm. Like pretending the problem isn't there is not a healthy strategy. And what horror can help you do is learn not to do that and to actually confront the problem, which is what I do when I swear and yell at people who aren't wearing masks and don't social distance. So as someone who does not... In a healthy... It's not healthy. Healthy way. It's really not healthy. (laughs) As someone who does not enjoy horror Uh and who has unfortunately seen a lot of horror just by being (laughs) in proximity to you, um, I think I get that. I think I there is now the list, right, of, okay, if the shit hits the fan. We've seen it play out, right? Right. You need, you know, make sure you have some water. You need to make sure that you, you know, can some fucking vegetables. You need to have a doctor that can work with some real rudimentary tools because you're going to need that. It's stuff like you always say in the zombie movies, the guy who's looking feverish right. and sick, has don't bring him into the compound. Been bitten and right. he's just, yeah, he's done. Like, so, yes, absolutely. And yet, okay. my stance has always been, I know who I am. <laughs> I will not survive any sort of serious breakdown in society Mm -hmm. to the point where I'm just going to sort of lay gently down on the ground (laughs) and wait to die because (laughs) I, I have no survival skills. You're not even really that interested in living in that world. No, I really am not. You don't want to live in the Mad Max Fury world. I don't want to live in that world. It's just like, you know, like, no, okay, that's. (laughs) You don't want to go through the purge. I'm checking out. This is not what I signed up for. I need prescriptions. I need, like, I, the glasses are going to be useless in, like, three years. What am I going to do at that point? And so it's just, so I'm going to sort of, you know, go gently into that good night. (laughs) So that's all that horror has taught me is that I am not built for that world. (laughs) I'm really not. And that's not even, like, a bourgeois, oh, I need to have fancy things. It's just like, I I don't have any skills. (laughs) I don't know how to farm. I don't know how to navigate in the wood. I okay, don't... but then then I think what you need to do is see yourself as the final girl who, you know, sort of starts out as, it's, it's Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween, right? She's just a babysitter at the beginning of the movie. Sure. And then by the end of the movie, she has survived and become stronger and learned how to kick ass. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, Linda Hamilton in Terminator, mm. who starts out saying, I don't know how to do anything. And then, you know, one sequel later, she is like the mother of the apocalypse. Right. I'm not interested in that. You don't want to. You know, I don't. You don't want that job. I don't need. I don't want that job. <laughs> I don't need that. Do you feel like do you've learned any sort of coping mechanisms or strategies or anything <laughs> from, from these movies? Absolutely not. No. No. I and maybe that, right? Maybe this proves out the study. I do not enjoy horror films. Mm-hmm. They do not ins- instill me with like fortitude. Like I don't feel after watching, oh like yeah, I can totally deal with that. It 
clarifies that I nope, I'm not built for that. <laughs> I'm not interested. If I so you don't you don't relate to the killer or the hero. You relate to one of the guys, the that victims, just gets killed yeah, that, off in the first right, reel. exactly the person that's like <laughs> no, just gets the axe in the back of the head. Yeah, except I'd probably be a much more willing victim of like, okay, can we just do me so that I can <laughs> check out all of it. <laughs> <laughs> even if you survive so jamie lee curtis my understanding is whatever other film she was in after in the sequels she had like severe ptsd yeah, she was, she was not a normal person yeah, no, like, she so, did not. it was not a happy same with linda hamilton was no. not a healthy person after mm. that had amazing fucking arms but was not <laughs> a healthy person was not in a good place mm. So I... That's actually a fair point. I'm not... No, 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 I'm okay. I mean, I I would like to think, right, that I would know sort of what to do. So zombies, right? Okay, you put your back to water. So you got to go somewhere where you can have the water, your water <laughs> to the back. You know, other stuff, okay, go to the desert and, and find, you know, do whatever. So, yeah, I, I sort of know the things to do. And I think my role would be, I could tell whoever would survive beyond me. I'd basically sit down and say, okay, here's what you need to do. Right. I feel, I feel like your most valuable role in any sort of horror movie or crisis situation would be pretty much what it is here. Mm-hmm. You would be the person who would say, that's fucking stupid what you're doing right now. I would. I would. (laughs) That's the dumbest idea anyone ever had. You're going to get us all killed. Yeah. I think that's a valuable role. I think we need need that person. I mean, that person, that's not very valuable. You need someone who knows how to sew up a fucking wound. You need someone (laughs) who knows how to farm and can food. You need someone... Um, who can maybe is really good with like tech shit and can figure like out oh flamethrowers, like, right? Something mm-hmm. like that. You yeah. don't need the like cynical, <laughs> ironic person who's just like that's fucking who's just stupid. critical of everything. Who's just like yeah, a no, fucking that person, bummer. That person it's does not, not make it to the end right. Of the movie like that's usually. not that's not a good role. I don't want to be. And so the only way I would be helpful is if somehow my respect for life was diminished so much <laughs> that I didn't mind killing people. Because then I could be, because I will be the one that's like, oh, we got to kill that bitch. Like, immediately. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) We have to, like, there's no question about it. There's no, oh, that used to be my best friend. She's not your best friend anymore. She's now a zombie, so she has to die. I would be good at that. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I value life. So I don't know that I would actually Mm -hmm. be able to execute. We'll we'll see when push comes to shove. So that's that's the only way that I would be helpful. I could be the executioner. I'm happy to do that. All right. I, I think we just need to watch more. I I think what I'm hearing is that you have just not watched enough. That is not what, how long have we been doing and this? And therefore, I've watched all you're not. the movies. Every movie, every like if you strung together all the horror films that we have watched and my reactions to them, they have all largely been I would not have gone there. <laughs> I would not be there. I would not have done that. I would not have done that. I would not have hung out with those people. I would have put that bitch on the curb. <laughs> All, like, it basically involves me not participating <laughs> in any of it. Opting out <laughs> of the entire scenario. <laughs> that, like, gif of Homer receding into the, the bushes, that's me. I'm just like, Ugh. <laughs> I don't want to do any of it. So, no, I don't think it's... I, I, th- I think that's a valid... I think that's a valid I don't need position. to watch more. That's just who... That's who I would be in this study is, you know, they'd be like, and then there was one woman who opted out. (laughs) 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 Fuck that. Not dealing with it. So. You're the results they throw out. Exactly. I'm, I'm, you know, the outlier. No. (laughs) Nope. 
I think that they, the in Mexico when we discuss a movie, we call it. Uh, we don't say melodrama. We say a crying movie. We don't say horror. We say a scary movie. We don't say a comedy. We say a funny one. You know, and it's because I think those three are emotions that we love recognizing on each other. And when you get together in a theater and everybody's scared at the same moment, you have this almost like a concert experience where you all react at the same time, uh, and it's beautiful. It's, it's very connecting. It's very empathic, and uh, we love. I mean, we live lives in which we avoid emotion. Uh, we seek comfort. Our lives are uneventful, and by nature, as animals, as narrative animals, we need the scare. We need the laughter. We need the the cry. We need the love experience. So you get it through narrative, and we complete it. Okay, so let's segue into talking about this movie that we're going to watch today. What do you actually know about The Devil's Backbone? I don't know anything about The Devil's Backbone. Okay. I know it's directed by Guillermo del Toro. Uh-huh. Uh, that is the extent of my knowledge. Okay. I actually think it's it's a pretty good example of of what we were discussing. You know, while there's no pandemic in it specifically, mm-hmm. it is a film about a bunch of people, mostly children, stuck in an isolated orphanage with a ghost during a time of complete social and political upheaval, the Spanish Civil War. Mm. So that doesn't feel a million miles away from, from what we're talking about, or even, in fact, where we are right now yeah. in this time of social upheaval and political crisis. So let's do a little background on this. I would personally describe it as a gothic romance ghost story merged with a war movie shot like a western with a little lord of the flies thrown in for good measure that is complex (laughs) it's a lot of imagery but one of your both of our favorite movies is pan's labyrinth yes guillermo describes this film as a brother to pan's labyrinth Hmm. in the sense that that's the girl movie this is the boy movie but the two really go together Okay. And he actually suggests people watch them together because he thinks they sort of rhyme, I think is the word he uses, hmm. with each other. Um, and, and in fact, you and I just watched, rewatched Pan's Labyrinth. Yes. So this is, he says, this is one of his most personal works, and he considers it really his first film, even though he made two films before this. His debut feature, Kronos, in 1993, uh, which was, you know, it was a, it was a sort of vampire movie. It was a first film. It got a lot of critical acclaim, but I think he, he said he was still trying to figure things out at that point. He doesn't feel like that was really the film he wanted to make. Mm-hmm. And then that got enough critical attention to get him hired to direct 1997's Mimic, which was a $30 million Hollywood sci-fi horror movie with Mira Servino. Have you seen that one? No. Big cockroach monster okay hired by the weinsteins and that experience del toro has described as a horrible horrible (laughs) horrible experience one of the worst experiences of my life working for the weinsteins working for the weinsteins uh Uh, this was it was bob weinstein harvey's brother who was apparently the problem. He didn't like the footage he was getting. He didn't think it was a traditional enough horror movie. Mm. It didn't have enough scares in it. He came to the set and interfered constantly. He tried to get Guillermo fired off this movie. Apparently, Mira Serino intervened and probably saved Guillermo's job. But then he took final cut of the film anyway, so mm-hmm. cut it the way he wanted to. It's worth noting, in fact, that just about the, right around that same time, Guillermo's father was kidnapped in Mexico and held for ransom for two months. Oh, my God. 
And yet, of these two experiences, Del Toro describes making Mimic as the more psychically damaging (laughs) experience. (laughs) Because he says, what was happening to me in the movie was far more illogical than the kidnapping, which is brutal, but at least there are rules. So basically, he was saying that the kidnappers were easier to deal mm-hmm. with than the Weinsteins, mm-hmm. which which makes a lot of sense to me. So there's, I mean, Mimic, it's not a great movie. There's, there's stuff in it that you can see Guillermo doing what he's good at, but it's, you know, just compromised. Yeah, yeah. So he he actually has described himself as being, at this point in his career, sort of in limbo and in creative crisis. And he says the person who saved him, he uses those words specifically, is another one of our favorites, Pedro Almodovar. Mm -hmm. Pedro and his brother Augustin offered to produce Guillermo's next movie, which turned out to be this movie, The Devil's Backbone. And in Del Toro's words, protected him. He said, I was free to create and given total control. Making The Devil's Backbone, I finally felt in command of my visual style, my narrative rhythm, and was able to work in a profound manner with my cast and crew. And my favorite story from this is Guillermo says he had the conversation with Pedro Almodovar about Final Cut. And he said, I want to have Final Cut, of course. And Pedro says, what is Final Cut? Like, he, he was unfamiliar with mm, the concept. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Guillermo explained it to him, and he was like, well, of course, you're the director. Of course the final cut is yours. Which, to me, just sort of tells you everything you need to know about what's wrong with the American movie industry mm-hmm. and why so often the real art is made in Europe. So, The Devil's Backbone premiered at the Toronto Film Festival. Unfortunately, it premiered on September 10th, 2001. Um, 9-11 happened the next day. Everything that happened at that festival got ignored, understandably. It wasn't a great time for what is fundamentally an anti-war movie. Mm -hmm. Or Uh, glitter. (laughs) Did glitter suffer the same fate? Yes, glitter suffered the same fate. I did not know that. Yes. (laughs) I'm sure glitter would have been a huge artistic and commercial success otherwise. Uh, yeah, so this movie never got a wide release. It didn't do anything commercially. Mm. But I think I think its reputation has only grown since then as mm-hmm. more people discover it, as pe- more people write about it. It got great reviews. Ebert called it a mournful and beautiful ghost story. Anyway, I don't think enough people have seen this movie. I wanted to watch it. I thought you would probably like it, but <laughs> one can never predict these things. So that's why we're watching it. Okay. I will say, we'll see what you think of it. I don't think of it as necessarily a scary movie, mm-hmm. or at least not scary in the traditional horror movie kind of way, but we'll see what you think about that. All right, well, we're going to go watch it. Uh, the Devil's Backbone is currently available to rent from most of the usual streaming services, and it's currently playing on the Criterion channel with all of the commentaries and goodies from the Blu-ray available, so people should check it out there. All right, when we get back, we'll discuss The Devil's Backbone. Okay. Hi everyone, this is Michael. And this is where I usually insert the trailer for the movie we're watching as a bumper between segments. But of course our movie this week is in Spanish, and the English language trailer, which you can hear behind my voice, has no dialogue. So I'm going to take this opportunity, as I do about once a year, to ask you to help support The Unenthusiastic Critic. This is a labor of love for me, and a labor of loathing for Nakia, but it does require a significant investment of time and money, and like everything we do, we endeavor to keep it ad-free. So if you're able to, we'd ask you to go to unaffiliatedcritic.com, hit the link in the menu that says Donate, and make a small, secure contribution to support our work through PayPal. And if you can't help support us financially, there are other ways you can help. 
If you like the show, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a starred review. This is particularly helpful because we don't have a lot of reviews, and what seems to happen is that disgruntled people go there to crap on our show after Nikia craps on their favorite movies. So if you happen to like hearing Nikia crap on their movies, you can help bolster our score there. You can also help us out by telling your friends about us and sharing the links to our episodes on social media. Maybe not this episode, just between us, we don't think it's one of our best, but, you know, other, better episodes. Either way, we want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll continue to enjoy The Unenthusiastic Critic. And now, back to the show. And we're back. During the break, Nikki and I watched The Devil's Backbone. So this movie is a lot of different kinds of stories in one, I think. I mean, it's a ghost story, it's a war story, it's a coming-of-age story, it's a heist story, and it's arguably even a love story. And I think this is something that's just true of Del Toro in general. In a foreword to a book on the Devil's Backbone by Matt Zoller Seitz and Simon Abrams, Del Toro describes his own career this way. I don't belong in any safe film category, too weird for full-on summer fair, too in love with pop culture for the art house world, and too esoteric for hardcore fandom. And I think that's true. I mean, I think every individual movie is hard to classify, and then as a body of work, it's hard to classify as anything except the kind of thing Guillermo does. (laughs) And I also think that means that not every film is going to work for everybody. Sure. I mean, I I think the only one of his films I've reviewed is Pacific Rim, and I didn't like it at all. That was way too much on the extreme pop culture edge for me. Uh, But I love Hellboy, which is also on that end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. I think you and I thought Shape of Water was okay. I liked it more than you did. You liked it more than I did. But yeah, it's not my favorite. Um, I think we were both a little underwhelmed with Crimson Peak. That's one I actually want to watch again. Yeah, I need to. When you brought that up the other day, and I was like, oh, I barely even remember that one. Yeah. Yeah. But I think we both think Pan's Labyrinth is one of the greatest movies of the mm-hmm. 21st century so far, mm-hmm. at least. Mm-hmm. So where does this one fall for you? Um, I think it is beautiful. It is second to Pan's Labyrinth for me. Okay. And I that, think that's true for me, too. I think it's a close second, though. I don't know that it's close. I mean, that's... I, and I, that may just be more a reflection of the genre than anything else. Um, not that this is scary horror, but mm-hmm. again, horror is never going to be my favorite genre. And so I am more inclined toward the fantasy Guillermo than the horror Guillermo. And it's also just, I mean, I think with Pan's Labyrinth, there's just such a world creation that... Yeah, I mean, Pan's Labyrinth is definitely the more fantastical yeah, exactly. So I just, so film. that is just my personal preference. So, so I, I think, yeah. in some ways, I think that's scarier than this movie is. I mean, I think there's... Yes, I would argue that the pale man in Pan's mm-hmm. Labyrinth is scarier than anything. anything. In this film. <laughs> Except possibly the war itself. In the devil's backbone. But yeah, so I would say Pan's Labyrinth would be my favorite above Devil's Backbone. Okay. They And they really do go together. Sure. I mean, they're, they came out about five years apart, and they actually take place about five years apart, mm-hmm. with this being the earlier one. This takes place in 1939. Towards the end of the war, yeah. And then Pan's Labyrinth, I think, is like 44. Yeah. Um, so maybe we should start there. In an interview with Zoller Seitz in that same book I just mentioned, Del Toro says, Spain is a very haunted country, and it's mostly haunted by the Civil War. Hmm. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm not that familiar with Spanish 
cinema, but, you know, he has said that it's basically movies about the war, sort of a cottage industry in Spain, Mm -hmm. which kind of makes sense because it's the defining event of the 20th century in Spain. So just a little background on the war itself. Uh, And I'm obviously not an expert in any of this, so if I get some of this wrong, I apologize. But basically in the 30s, Spain was a country highly polarized between left and right. A lot of this resonates with us now, too, as the more I read about this. In 1936, a progressive government was elected that had the support of most of the left. And about six months later, there was an attempted coup by the right-wing nationalist faction in alliance with most of the military. Mm -hmm. I think they expected it to be over in a couple of days. It didn't work out that way. The common people fought back against the military, and this civil war went on for several years. So it's the Republicans are the loyalists on the left and then the nationalists on the right. And so to a large extent, it was professional soldiers versus civilians more than it was a war between two standing armies. You had, you know, the army bombing its own civilians, which is an image that starts this movie. The war officially ended in 39, right right around the time this movie takes place. Though, as we saw in Pan's Labyrinth, the Loyalists continued to fight Mm -hmm. a guerrilla war for a while after. But basically, this led to a 40-year dictatorship under uh, Francisco Franco in Spain until his death in 1975. So I I think all of this is important to start this conversation because I think this is a political film in a way that probably not all American audiences are going to get going Mm -hmm. into it Mm -hmm. because it's just not in our blood the same way. I think there's the struggle for the soul of the country is reflected in this movie, in the Mm -hmm. plot of this movie. Mm -hmm. And I also think there's an inevitable sadness to both this and Pan's Labyrinth. To some extent, neither of these movies was going to have a completely happy ending because it just, that's not what happened in the real world. And again, it's like, I'm not sure someone watching this movie cold is going to know that coming into it Mm -hmm. um, in the same way that a Spanish audience would. So I think, you know, I think what he, what he tried to do here is take the sort of gothic ghost story and tell the story of the war through that lens or vice versa, however you want to look at it. All right, well, where do you, where do you want to start with this? So we start off with this prologue with the narration of who we come to realize is the doctor, mm-hmm. played by Federico Lupi, talking about ghosts and about tragedy and all of that. And then these images that we don't really know what they mean yet. We get a bomb dropping. Mm-hmm. We see a dying child lying on the pavement with his head bleeding. We see another boy sitting over him. We see this image of water and someone drowning in the water. Um, all of this within the first, you know, 60 seconds of this movie. Mm-hmm. It, it's a pretty good opening, I think. <laughs> it is. I mean, it, it really does help to sort of set the tone for the film. And I think sort of challenges the audience to think about a ghost story, quote-unquote, in a different way. Like, that whole prologue is sort of what actually is a ghost. And is it sort of tragedy just doomed to repeat itself? Is it an instant of pain? Something that's dead that still sort of seems to be alive? An emotion trapped in In time. time, A blurred photograph. Mm -hmm. um, An insect trapped in amber. So it's, it's, it's a really poetic way to think about ghosts, which I think is, knowing what we know to be the end of the film. Right. The ghost is not 
the danger in right. this film, right? right. The, the ghost is not the villain. Um, it is humans and humanity right. um, that is the villain. Yeah, it's sort of telling us right from the start to, you know, rethink what a ghost is right. and what a ghost means. Right, and, and what their purpose is. Right. Right. All right, so this whole, this whole, and we're not going to go scene by scene through this, but so the the traditional gothic romance structure is, you know, you have this mysterious place, usually a castle or a mansion or something, mm-hmm. a usually a damsel, pure of heart, comes to this place and, you know, there's danger and there's secrets and there's hidden treasure and there's all these things that need to be worked out in the story and so he's sort of repurposing that here with this kid that shows up carlos Mm -hmm. so talk talk to me about carlos carlos is a very cute little boy who is being brought to this orphanage by his tutor um tutor quote unquote tutor quote unquote right yeah right um but it's very clear that he is you know a really inquisitive kid a sensitive kid bookish Mm -hmm. and what he doesn't realize is that his father has been killed in the war. Right. And he is now being... No one's being, told him that. No one's told him that. Uh, no one ever does tell him that, do No, they? no one ever tells I mean, I imagine by the end of the film, he probably guesses that. But uh, no, no one ever tells him that. And he's being left basically at this orphanage for sort of left behind sons of the guerrilla fighters. Mm-hmm. I think that kid is really good. He is very good. Um, and he's got a weird age to him. Like, he mm. seems older. He mm-hmm. seems... Mm-hmm. He's got. He's very self-possessed. He's got a lot of maturity while still being innocent. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he gets dropped off at this school, and he thinks like they're just stopping there, and then he gets left behind. Yeah. They they basically leave without him, and the guy pretty much runs out the <laughs> gate and leaves him there. Um, all right, well, talk. Let's talk about the orphanage. Mm-hmm. The orphanage. The orphanage is very large and castle-like. It is both. Alive with the life of these little boys, but also somehow decaying and dying. Yeah, it's decrepit. And then the big sort of <laughs> Chekhov the bomb. There is there is an unexploded <laughs> bomb in the middle of the sort of courtyard of the school um, that the kids are sort of festooned with like ribbons and things like. It's yep. just become almost like a flagpole um, for for this school. What Guillermo has said is, and Guillermo's talked about how the bomb is ob- it's just a symbol of death and a symbol right, of the just war ongoing that they war. With yeah. on a day-to-day basis. But he said he said he wanted the bomb to be almost a mother figure to the kids. They mm. planted flowers around it and put ribbons on it like it's a fertility goddess, <laughs> a totemic figure. I wanted it to look over them the whole time. Mm-hmm. And I think there's one point at which Carlos actually prays to the bomb. He does. He asks the bomb to show him Santi, Santi where he needs to go. Yeah. And the ribbon does and sort of point in that direction. <laughs> yeah. So it is very possible it's that uh, the bomb has mystical powers. All right. So let's talk about the adults here first at this place. There aren't very many of them. No. So Carmen and the doctor are basically the sort of overseers of the orphanage. Uh, Carmen lost her husband in the war um, and lost a leg. <laughs> and lost a leg. And, you know, has the the manner of someone who's been in war for a very long time and is, is jaded and cynical and tired and trying to support an orphanage full of boys on, you know, what are very limited resources. And she's just a very practical woman. Mm-hmm. Whereas the doctor is, you know, a man of science and a man of letters. Mm-hmm. You know, he listens to classical music, he reads poetry, and he is also impotent. <laughs> and so there is this 
tension between the two of them of being in love, but he clearly cannot fully satisfy her in the way that she needs. And so there's a little bit of emasculation with him. Guillermo's talked about how all the adults in this movie are incomplete in one way or another. Mm. That they're all, you know, broken in some Mm -hmm. way. She's missing the leg and he's both impotent physically and in a way sort of spiritually. Like Mm -hmm. he's a bit of a coward, like he sort of doesn't take action. But nobody's completely good or bad either, that it's all, you know. Yeah. Um, Then we have Jacinto. Jacinto is someone who has been at the orphanage since he was a little boy and is clearly probably came in broken and then stayed broken Yeah, through his time there and is very resentful of the orphanage and pretty much hates being there. And at some point, Carmen sort of took Jacinto on as a lover in a really inappropriate way. Yeah, apparently while he was still a boy. Well, it's, it, it is yeah. important that he was still fairly young. And so there's that, uh, this sort of Oedipus complex between, you know, the three of them. But he is basically using his relationship with Carmen to get to the gold that she is storing on behalf of the resistance. Right. And this, just historical, this is another, when when the two sides kind of split up the the country geographically the territory that they each controlled the the loyalists controlled the federal reserves Mm. the bank so there was this gold that they were using to finance the war Mm -hmm. so that's where that image of the gold comes from Mm -hmm. um but yeah he's an asshole he's very angry yeah and he looks, and this is the thing with the ghost, and he looks like a hero. Yes. When you first he's see him, man. he's the yeah. good-looking leading mm-hmm. man guy. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I remember the first time I saw this, I assumed on that first shot, he was the good guy. He mm-hmm. was the hero. He was going to be the mentor to the little boy coming here. And that's not no. how that works no. out. He's a very dark, dark man. Yeah. Um, and he's also sleeping with uh, Conchita, mm-hmm. who is... I don't know if she's like a teacher or something. Te- I'm not sure if she's yeah. a teacher or a housemaid or yeah. what, what she is. Yes, the younger woman there. All right, and then we got the kids. And we got the kids. Not all of whom we get to know very well. There's really only... No, they're mostly background kids. They're like yeah. four that we hang out with the most and then... And then really only the one yeah. other than Carlos that we get to know, which is uh, Jaime. Yes, who establishes himself pretty quickly as the bully. Um, and right from the get-go is, you know, not... At all in favor of Carlos and... Um, well, even before that, in the prologue, we saw what yes. appeared to be... Him killing another Him killing kid. this kid. Yeah. Yeah. So we go in biased against him. And, you know, his character pretty much confirms that <laughs> <laughs> through most of the film until we get the truth of what happened and, and why he is he is the way that he is. But yeah, I mean, he's a he is a boy who experienced something very traumatic and decided to sort of turn inward and not trust. All right. And then... Uh, I think Carlos is there about 30 seconds (laughs) before he sees Santi. Yeah. He is, when he first gets to the orphanage and he's standing in the courtyard near the bomb, he looks over and there is a shadow of a little boy in a doorway and he follows it sort of down into this sort of cellar area. But yeah, so he, it doesn't take long before Santi sort of makes himself known. You want to talk about Santi? I like Santi. Um, (laughs) I think that his, the... The design of Santi, which seems, seems weird, but is 
very, very cool. It's brilliant. It's so because he's always sort of looking. It always looks like he's underwater. Yeah. And the wound, the head wound, is constantly sort of bleeding. So there's this like faint blood that's sort of always floating in the air when he's <laughs> it's this cloud of blood. It's just it's like um, as if he's in water. It's like leaking out like pig pen with the dust, except it's like blood. <laughs> um, and it lingers yeah. in the air after he leaves. But it's it's. It's just perfectly rendered, and it may be sort of my favorite visualization of a ghost Mm -hmm. that I've seen in film. And there's his skin, it's like porcelain Mm -hmm. almost. It's like like a doll, like a a broken doll, like a cracked doll. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, on that Criterion channel, for people who want to check it out, there's a whole, there's a bunch of little documentaries off the Blu-ray, and one of them is just all about the design of this ghost and how Guillermo went back and forth with the <laughs> the artist trying to get them to do the vision that he was picturing. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said he wanted it to be the most beautiful ghost you ever saw. And it is. And I think it is. It yeah. is. It absolutely is. All right. Well, I mean, this is our one of our Halloween episodes, so talk to me about this as a horror movie or a scary movie. So it's not particularly scary. Okay. And part of that may be... Because there are some scenes that are... There are some scenes that are a little, like, jumpy Mm -hmm. sort of things like that. Um, But it isn't... I wouldn't call it scary. It's almost more a thriller than it is anything. Mm. And again, that may just be be because the ghost is not the problem. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) The ghost is there to finish, you know, I got unfinished business. Right. And I'm very focused on what I need to do. I don't, like, whatever else is happening around, I don't really care. The scary part comes in with Jacinto and his just cold anger and hatred but there is no humanity there yeah. there's more humanity in santi yeah. than there he is in no Jacinto. yeah so yeah i didn't find it particularly scary i think it is beautifully atmospheric i mean when carlos goes down to that cellar space where they have that it's a big pool a, of water yeah, i don't know a, i'm what not that, quite sure what it's for i don't know if that was like a that space was some kind of before it was an orphanage, it was, I don't know what you'd use that big pool of water for. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you'd use all those scissors that are hanging. Mm-hmm. Was it like a tannery or something? I don't know what no that idea. is, but there's, yes. Yeah. There's this huge pool of murky water mm-hmm. in the basement. So any water that you can't see into is automatically just creepy. <laughs> it's automatically Because um, you're just like, don't, what the hell's going on there? And it's just a very dark and dank place. And then Santi is sort of just creeping around and is confrontational, but not aggressive. So he's right. there and he's in... Carlos's face, but he's not harming him, really. And Carlos, in the same way, Carlos is afraid of him. Yeah. But Carlos also seeks him out and keeps trying to reach out to him and then gets scared and runs away. Yeah. It takes a while before he actually connects with with Santi, but Mm -hmm. he... His first instinct is not necessarily terror. It's... No. Oh, there's something here Mm -hmm. to explore. Um, But I do think some of those scenes, like in the basement... Yeah. that first scene where he and Jaime go in to get the water. Water. Mm-hmm. They have to sneak into the kitchen in the night and get the jugs of water. First, Santi shows up, and then Jacinto. Jacinto shows up with a shotgun because yeah. he thinks someone's prowling around. So yeah, you have these. Again, we're not sure at that point in the movie which one we're supposed to be more scared of. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's where we learn that Jacinto is trying to break into this safe. Right, to steal the gold. Um, which appears to be the whole reason he's... Is that the whole reason he's sleeping with Carmen? Yes, he's been sort of going key by key. <laughs> She's got a giant She has like 80,000 keys, keys, so every time he sleeps with her, he tries another key <laughs> on the safe, yeah. Looking for the gold. Looking, Looking for, for the, the gold. Yep. The rebel gold. So I think I think to the extent that we're talking about this, again, it's sort of a, you know, a struggle for the soul of this country and the soul of these kids... We've got Jacinto being the bad example, mm-hmm. right? 
And then I think Jaime could go that way. Mm-hmm. I think he's the kid that could it turn out like him. Sure. And I think there's this sort of slow process of sort of humanizing him throughout this movie as he and Carlos almost become friends. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a fight in the basement where Jaime actually pulls a knife on him. Yes. And then I don't remember somehow Jaime falls in the pool. I think Carlos hits him with something and he falls in the pool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So pretty much from day one that Carlos comes to the orphanage, Jaime is bullying him, taking his comic books, you know, pranking him to be left behind in the, the creepy basement and, and things like that. And it's, it seems to be out of, jealousy almost because Carlos is like oh he had a tutor and he has mm-hmm. you know he came with a suitcase full of books and just seems to be a very he knows things and he reads and he ha- he obviously had access to things that right. maybe some of these kids haven't had well these kids have not had in a very long time so part of it is Jaime just sort of reestablishing his dominance over the the group of like the new kid is not about to show me up I'm gonna right the other part of it is, of course, coincidentally, Carlos is assigned to Santi's former bed. So there's yes. then all this sort of wrapped up with Jaime's guilt around Santi's death. And the kids don't know Santi is no, dead at this no. point. They know he disappeared the night the bomb fell. They think he ran away, maybe. Yeah. Jaime's the only one who, who knows what happened to Santi. Right, right. Uh, but yes, there is one night where they are down in the cellar by the pool and Jaime pulls a, like a switchblade on Carlos and you know they tussle and and Carlos knocks Jaime into the pool and Jaime can't swim so Carlos goes in and saves him and then Jacinto comes down and sort of yells at the boys for sort of playing where they shouldn't be playing and Carlos does not tell on Jaime Mm -hmm. like he protects the other boys and gets cut in the face by uh Jacinto oh I forgot that yeah Uh, and yeah he's a terrible person um (laughs) so I think that that's sort of the start of Jaime beginning to trust Carlos Mm -hmm. and open up a little bit more to him and then over the course of the film it is carlos that jaime tells the truth about what happened that night that the bomb fell mm-hmm. which is we might as well go there we're not spoiler alert spoilers yeah he and santi had been down in the in that cellar area and much like he and carlos right, did picking slugs and jacinto comes into the cellar area and Jaime runs to hide. Santi is caught. And initially, Jacinto seems to just be trying to sort of scare Santi into like, what Mm -hmm. are you doing down here? But he pushes him a little too hard. Yeah. And he goes sort of headfirst into a brick wall and cracks his head open. Yeah. Um, And instead of telling anyone, Jacinto decides to basically tie a rope around uh, Santi and dump him into the pool. Yeah. And I... I will admit it was like my third viewing of this movie before I realized him in that pool is the title of the movie. It's the mm-hmm. it's the jar the the fetuses in the jars that the doctor mm-hmm. like I don't know why that <laughs> I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that's the doctor has these jars with what they are is spina bifida. Specimen, specimen jars, Specimens. Yeah. And apparently what Guillermo has said is that before it was diagnosed, before they knew the cause of that, which happened in like the 40s, the folklore around spina bifida was that it was a curse that either resulted from sin in a family or a curse for unwanted children. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's these orphans in this right. place. And the war and all of that. Um, but it, 
The doctor also sells the fluid these things float in. Because it's mostly rum. Because it's mostly rum as a cure for impotence mm-hmm. in the town. Apparently does not work, but yes. <laughs> no, it doesn't work. It's a superstition. And yet he drinks it too. Yes. yes. <laughs> so at some point they, the doctor and Carmen figure out that Yacinto is just trying to break into this safe. Yeah. That's what he's been do- spending all his time doing. Mm-hmm. And they throw him out. She whacks him in the head with her cane. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the doctor and Carmen are preparing to basically evacuate right. the orphanage because the war is getting closer and closer. Mm-hmm. But then Yacinto comes back. Yes. While they're loading the truck up. Mm-hmm. Steals all the gasoline, parks it in front of the safe with it planning to blow the safe up, and sets it on fire. Mm-hmm. Did you... I'm, I'm curious... Were you surprised when that explosion happened? I mean, I guess we were all surprised that it wasn't the bomb, right? Like, the bomb had been sitting there right. the entire film. The bomb never does go off. Never Chekhov's bomb never goes right. off. And so it was, it's Jacinto who blows up the orphanage. Right. The first time I saw it, I was like, damn, Guillermo. <laughs> that he would blow like, up an you orphanage? You just killed about 30 kids oh, well, it's Guillermo. in this explosion. Guillermo kills kids. <sighs> Still, this I think there's still <laughs> something about my brain that is not programmed to expect that. Guillermo kills children. <laughs> That's just... uh, you know, okay, maybe a couple of, maybe the adults, maybe a couple of the children, mm-hmm. but like almost all of the children yeah, they, yeah. are killed yes. in that explosion. Mm-hmm. Um, War as hell. Funny story here. Oh, about children being blown up? That's... Yes. Oddly enough, yes. Horrifying. So, Guillermo has talked about how most of the children were a delight to work with on this movie. There was one kid Mm. who was a pain in the ass. He kept ruining shots. He just wouldn't follow instructions. He was was a pain in the ass. And so they decided, okay, he's going to be one of the kids that dies (laughs) in that explosion. And I don't think it was one of the main kids anyway. Mm -hmm. But um, I I have an idea which one it is, but I don't know for sure. He, He didn't say... Uh, so he said, you know, we told the kid, okay, you're going to be dead in this scene. They shot the scene. Everything blew up. Everybody's lying there. He said, we're all weeping. Everybody, the cameraman is weeping. The script girl is weeping. I'm weeping. And I say, that's it. Print. And then the script girl says, I think there's movement (laughs) over there. And they look at the footage and they see that this kid, (laughs) the pain in the ass kid, sat up and looked at the camera at the end of that take. And he says, he says, this fucking kid, he said he was in other scenes and he always ruined the scenes and then he ends up fucking up the last fucking scene he had so he said i go up to him and i say why the fuck did you do that and he said because i feel my character wouldn't die he would just be injured (laughs) which you You know know, gotta give the kid points he wants to have some input on his character that's okay that's fair he was in the moment he was feeling it i don't want to be dead my character wouldn't die here no no he'd just be injured (laughs) gotta respect it Okay, but yeah, so yeah, shit has hit the fan here. Yeah. Oh, we didn't talk about poor Conchita, who had bad taste in men. Yeah, I mean, she picked the wrong dude, and he basically stabbed her um, when she wouldn't comply and say, you yeah. know, I'm sorry. And we didn't talk about the ring. Yes, uh, so Jaime had a crush on Conchita, and so he had gotten a sort of a cigar ring. Yeah, it's a little the little paper ring that goes around a yeah. cigar. He had actually traded. Right, with Carlos. He didn't steal it from Carlos. No, he, he traded, traded it. for yeah. it. So this was like a 
Was that the nudie picture where the vagina was sideways? <laughs> yes, it was. was. That the train? <laughs> <laughs> he drew a picture of a nude woman, and one of the kids looks at it, and, like, her pussy's on sideways. Looks like a mouth. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he had gotten it from Carlos and then given it to Conchita um, because he really did sort of love her, and it was mm-hmm. very sweet, but obviously evil, horrible. Yacinto stole it off of her yeah. after he murdered her in the in the road. Yeah. Which is pretty much when Jaime decides... Oh, he has to Yacinto die. Yacinto has yeah. to die now. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, then it basically becomes Yacinto against the orphanage, whatever is left of it. Um, Carmen dies in the explosion. Right. Um, That's a nice scene. It is a nice scene with the two, the doctor and Carmen. And the doctor is very badly injured, but has basically, you know, to your point earlier of how his impotence was both sort of very physical, but also just in his character, he does become the sort of last man standing yeah. um, in the movie and, and sort of makes a commitment to the, you know, handful of kids that are left that yeah. we're gonna I'm gonna die here I'm gonna like, defend this is what yeah. we're not going mm-hmm. anywhere and you know that's what he does Jacinto comes back with his two sort of cronies to find the gold they lock the kids up in some sort of side room while they're trying to hammer open the safe turns out Carmen had actually loaded the gold into her prosthetic leg <laughs> which was kind of brilliant uh, and Jacinto finds it but at that point the the boys have sort of gone lord of the flies on him yes. <laughs> And organized. Which I I love. I mean, that scene right there, that's the coming of age story. And that's where, like, Jaime in particular has grown up at that point and become, like, almost the leader Mm -hmm. of this group. And he even says something about, you know, we have to protect the littler kids Mm -hmm. or the littler kids might be hungry or something like that, where he's actually caring about the community there and caring about the other kids. Um, But, yeah, earlier there was a classroom scene Carmen was giving a lesson on prehistoric era, and it showed people hunting mammoths with Mm -hmm. spears, Mm -hmm. and that's what they become at the end of this movie. They sharpen some, like, wood sticks and then basically poke Jacinto (laughs) to death, really, (laughs) uh, down in the cellar, and then they feed him to Santi. Essentially, they push him in the pool, and... He goes down with Santi. Santi, Carlos has made contact with Santi a little mm-hmm. earlier than that. And Santi said... Bring me Jacinto. He asked, he asked yeah. Santi, what do you want? And he said, Jacinto, bring yeah. him to me. And that's what they do. They push him in the pool. He is very symbolically weighted down with all this gold he's carrying. Mm-hmm. So he can't get out of the pool. And then Santi just wraps him in a big hug and yep. pulls him down. So you didn't find any of that scary. Not really scary, necessarily. Okay. No, it was definitely, like, eerie and creepy a mm. little, um, but it wasn't scary. Okay. It was all beautiful. I mean, it's... The whole movie is just gorgeous. Yeah. The light and mm-hmm. everything and the difference in the light, the color palette of mm-hmm. this movie is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. All the internal stuff is this sort of rust-colored yeah. light. Like, that bomb is rusty right in the middle. That's the centerpiece. Yep. And then everything inside is that sort of slightly decayed rust color, but gorgeous. And then those fantastic external shots... Mm-hmm. In the bright sunlight. I mean, that's where the Western part of this comes. Those are very John Ford. Very Dust Bowl. Shots shooting from like inside, shooting out into that bright light while figures stand in the doorway. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's that's pretty much it. They kill Jacinto. Mm -hmm. And then the kids just, all the adults are dead at this point. The doctor has passed away. He was, he was holding guard with his shotgun sitting up in the loft of the barn or whatever it is. And Mm -hmm. he passed away there. Didn't stop him though. Oh, no. The doctor then becomes a ghost. The doctor then becomes a ghost. <laughs> Himself. Uh, and frees the kids when they're when, when 
Yacinto locks them into like a storage room or something. Yeah. It is the the doctor's ghost that frees them, mm-hmm. which I thought was a nice little moment. It is a nice moment, and it's nice because earlier in the film he said something like, "I've like I've chosen my place." He said to yeah. Carmen, "I've chosen my place in life, and it's here." Yeah, and that's where he's gonna stay. The very last shot we see is him standing in his ghost, right in the doorway, standing in the doorway as all the kids go out into the world. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this coming back to what what I was saying before, it's like, is this a happy ending? No, I mean, we know that those kids are not walking into a lovely world. No. One, they could die on that road because it's, I think they said it's like a day's walk it's before a day's you walk get to, to the town. next town, right? And um, the war is still going on and they're does wounded. Not end and so, one, they may or may not even make it to the town. And then, two, they're orphans right. and they have nothing. And so. The doctor is there as a ghost. Mm-hmm. I, Santi. Probably, I don't know if Santi is... We don't get any sign that, like, Santi's been set free by this. No. Which would be the traditional yeah. construction, right? That Santi got justice and then he gets to go... Maybe he's probably still there, too. <laughs> yeah, it's a really melancholy, mm-hmm. sort of quasi-tragic ending here. At best, you can say, okay, well, these kids came together and they sort of formed this little community and they went out into the world... Well, and I think that that's another difference, right, between this and Pan's Labyrinth is, like, we got our happy ending because she died and and entered this world of fantasy, right? So she got to have, Ophelia got to have a happy ending because she became princess of the fantasy world and got to sort of reside and and rule in this this kingdom. she died. She did that, but what I'm saying is (laughs) we at least got the quote-unquote happy ending because we got to see her in the sort of afterlife fantasy world, whatever you want to call it you know live well um and be loved the the doctor in this movie by the way is the king her father father in that Mm -hmm. movie too at the end so they're again talk about the way these movies rhyme with each other Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. whereas these kids are walking just into reality like there's no fantasy there so i think that that's just yeah all right well what's your favorite part Mm, i mean i think santi is my favorite part i just liked seeing him um, because I, I really do think that it's just a beautifully realized ghost. Like, it's it's just amazing. And it does seem like something that Guillermo probably saw in a dream and was like, I need you to get this exactly right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and they did. it's just, it's so eerie and yet sweet and beautiful. So that was probably my my favorite aspect of the film was, was Santi. Did you have a favorite part? I don't know. I, I just love this movie. I love everything about this movie. I, I think the cinematography is amazing. Mm-hmm. I think it's just, it's it's hard to make ugly look beautiful. And I think mm. this movie does that. Mm-hmm. And I also think, I mean, even like the ghost you're talking about, it, it is beautiful, even though it's a dead, traumatized right, yeah. child with a broken head, yeah. bleeding. Mm-hmm. But there there is this weird beauty in that. And I think somehow thematically that fits with the whole thing, too, is that that's you know, again, it's the question of whether it's a happy ending. It's like, well, there's good things here. The kids grow up a little bit. They come together. They don't turn evil. Mm-hmm. Some evil is vanquished. The, the adults find the good within themselves, though they then die. It's it's tentative hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's something beautiful about that. I think there's, it, it is a very haunting movie to me. Yeah. Yeah. Even though the ghost is, like you said, the least of the problems. <laughs> like that's... <laughs> You know, you could you could take the ghost out of this movie and it would be fundamentally the same movie. Yeah. Okay, so you would recommend this one? Yes. Okay, one of the better Halloween. Is it a Halloween movie? Sure. Uh, 
I, I mean, I if we say that anything that involves a ghost is a Halloween movie, then okay, sure, it's a Halloween movie. But no, I think it trends. Like, Guillermo transcends. <laughs> Guillermo um, transcends. That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week as we continue the Unenthusiastic Critics Halloween Movie Marathon. Nikki, I just realized I probably did these in the wrong order. We talked about how The Devil's Backbone was Guillermo's sort of twisted take on a gothic romance story. Mm -hmm. And next week, we're going to watch a much more traditional version of the gothic romance story. Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca from 1940. Okay. Okay. So a blonde woman doing something. Okay, I don't know why you assume it's a blonde woman. She's definitely a blonde woman. (laughs) Just because Hitchcock had a (laughs) well-documented fetish. She's actually not a classic blonde. Okay. Yeah, so it might surprise you. All right. Uh, it's another movie that I don't know that I would describe as a horror movie. Okay. It's more spooky mystery atmosphere. Uh, but it's it's one of my favorites. Okay. Looking forward to it. Okay. You're not really looking no, forward not, to it? No, not really no. at all. Okay. No. <laughs> In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, follow us on Twitter at Free Range Critic, and subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. In any of these places, we encourage you to leave a comment on the show or suggest a film Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means conning your partner into watching movies they really, really don't want to watch. I do feel like horror sort of prepared me for this pandemic a little bit. How so? I mean, if you think about it, the vast majority of horror movies are about being stuck in one place, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You're stuck in the house with the zombies, being Night of the Living Dead, or you're stuck in the spaceship with the xenomorph and alien, or you're stuck in the Antarctic base in the thing, right? And most importantly, you're stuck with other people. Yes. Who are the real problem. Yes. Don't you think that all reflects on our pandemic experience? That you and I have been stuck together for, <laughs> for eight months? In this apartment for eight months? <laughs> well, we actually may have the perfect pandemic relationship because you and I have spent way too much time together <laughs> for uh, in comparison to most couples. Yeah, because we, we both worked at home for most right, of the time. For a lot of the other, time so. and often sometimes at the same organization. And yeah. so we have developed just an unnatural <laughs> codependency and comfort with each other. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that may have put us on a little bit of a better footing to go into this this moment. Now, we are about to enter winter. Oh, yeah. Which may... That might change the dynamic. That may so change the dynamic. Might be then entering into the thing. Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall well, in The Shining. Sure, where I'm going to take a blowtorch to you or something. No, no, um, I, I'm claiming the Jack Nicholson role. Well, no, and I'm saying it's the thing, and oh, the thing. Okay, I'm going to just set me on fire. Set you on fire. Yeah, that does seem likely. I, I have to so. admit. I think so. <laughs> <laughs>